Coming to you via the internet and your friends at PipesMagazine.com, it's the Pipes Magazine radio show. The show that's like McDonald's french fries, old, salty, and just bad tasting. Now, I invite you to sit back, relax, the smoking lamp is lit. Here's your host, Brian Levine. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Pipes Magazine radio show. Yes, the sometimes irreverent, sometimes educational, but always entertaining weekly pipe smoking broadcast. And I am your host, Brian Levine. It is now officially summer here in uh, the Northern Hemisphere. And in tonight's show, uh, we're going to kick off our summer series. Yeah, we're going to do another one of those. I found one that I like. So completely different than what we've done in the past, too. Um, in the meantime, in pipe parts, I'm going to talk about bowl caps, windscreens, and all that stuff by request. Then my the summer series is uh, what I'm calling Stories with Alan Schwartz. And for those of you that don't know Alan Schwartz, Alan has been uh, smoking a pipe since uh, the 19, early 1950s and has been involved in the pipe business uh, some way or another since the 1980s and is now retired. Um, so more on that coming up. Lots of really good stuff. I've already got it all recorded, but there's a lot of really good stuff there. Um then we'll have music and mailbag, and I have a rave for tonight. And before we get started, I want to remind you all that you must be of legal smoking age wherever you are in order to listen to this fine and wonderful show. Once you've done that, I would like to remind you to go to pipesmagazine.com. And in particular, there's an article called Exploring the Current Vintage Tobacco Market by James Foster. Go check out that article. Um... That's our own Pi Lawrence, who's been on the show before, but go read that article. It's a lot of fun, and oftentimes, you know, I don't, I don't really point out articles on Pipes Magazine, but uh, this one stands out as uh, particularly useful and entertaining and amusing and informative at this point in uh, the pipe and tobacco world. All right, let's get the show rolling, so everybody sit back, relax, fire up a bowl. Thank you all for tuning in, and here we go. All right, for pipe parts. So we got this uh, comment on Facebook, and it's from William, and he writes another wonderful show as always. And that's about last week um, or two weeks ago, not uh, last week. And he says, "Well-aged tobacco is a thing of beauty." I received an eight-ounce jar of Penzance that is ten years old as a welcome gift. Um, and then he goes on to say, "In next week's episode, can you discuss wind caps?" Yeah. So, what is a wind cap? Um, a wind cap is an attachment that goes over the bowl of the pipe. So you light the pipe, then you put the, the attachment on it. And it's supposed to yeah, keep the ash from blowing out of the pipe. Remember all those pictures of those wonderful uh, seafaring captains standing at the front of their ship with their pipe and puffing away on smoke? Well, anybody that's ever smoked a pipe out in 20-mile-an-hour winds knows that unless you get the bowl turned exactly the right way, your ash is going everywhere. I've even been outside in the wind, and you know, a gust of wind would come up and blow the ash straight up into my face. So a wind cap is really designed to allow the tobacco to breathe, but also to keep the ash in it. Um the 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 most common wind cap is the little metal one that's got a little little spring action to it so you pinch it and put it on the pipe and then the little springs come out and grab onto the side inside of the bowl and you're still allowed to smoke with it you can't really light through it although i guess you could if you really wanted to try but uh again it's it's intended to keep the ash inside and keep the pipe smoking in a windy condition now i've got some little modified things from ricardo santia that i use as bowl caps um, i've seen uh, other pipe makers make a make bowl caps out of briar or cork where they just use that and that's just intended to close up the pipe and so that you can put it in your pocket without the ashes burning all over you um 
you will see from time to time where a pipe maker, uh, in particular, I think of Peterson with this, where you'll see sterling silver caps or built-in caps into the pipes where it's a hinged lid. Uh, I've seen those in the past where it's actually the, the pipe maker takes a metal you know precious or not and fits a rim around there and then attaches a hinge and a cap to the bowl so you just pop the lid fill it up with tobacco light it smoke it close the lid uh, those are really prevalent when you look at those old um, hungarian hunting style pipes that have like the the decorative porcelain bowls and a and a big long stem you'll see a lot of those on on that style um, I've seen some of the 1950s, 1960s, 1970s era pipes where they had a wood cap that came up and over the bowl. Uh, and again, those, those ventilated caps are meant to keep the pipe smoking. Uh, there's other types that are meant to keep the pipe, you know, keep the tobacco and, and kind of snuff it out and keep it for later. I think in a uh, previous episode, we talked about uh, little pops of tobacco shooting up out of the bowl while you're lighting it or while you're smoking it. If you have a windscreen on, that'll stop a lot of that from happening. So it helps kind of protect your clothes, too. Now, it is another accessory that you have to deal with. And when you're tamping and lighting, you do have to take it off or open it up to do that. But if it's going to help save uh, hot ashes from coming out onto your shirt or coming out onto your pants, might be well worth it. Um, if you're looking for a cap to snuff out the tobacco and save it for later and you don't have anything, you know, you don't have access to one, wine corks work wonderful. Just take your pocket knife and a, and a wine cork and trim it down so that it pushes into your bowl, kind of like a wine stopper and just holds in there and you just and again you you just want to make sure that your you know cork will burn a little easier than than briar will but you're not putting it up against hot burning flames but that will help save the tobacco for later that means you can put the pipe in your pocket and it can jostle around without any problems there um, and again i've seen some pipe makers make those that way uh, I kind of like, you know, when I'm out traveling and I use my little bowl caps or my little stoppers, um, I kind of like, you know, I'll, I'll smoke one bowl uh, and I'll smoke it in maybe four or five 15 minute increments over the day. Just, you know, grab a cup of coffee, sit down for 15 minutes, puff on my pipe for a little bit and then put that cap back or put that plug back in and close up the bowl, uh, put a pipe cleaner up the stem let the pipe cool down for a minute, put it in my pocket, and I'm good to go, and, uh, and off I go. And when I reopen it after, you know, two hours, three hours, whatever the time has been, I kind of enjoy that bowl a little bit more. Um, I do have a windscreen here, but I very rarely ever use it, and maybe I ought to start playing around with it a little bit more because, uh, yeah, it might help save some of my T-shirts while I'm sitting here working at my desk or whatever I'm doing. Uh, if you have any comments or suggestions on bowl caps, wind caps, stuff like that, I know that there's some people that when they're halfway done with a bowl, they let it cool completely down and then they coil up a pipe cleaner and put it in there and that helps keep the ash in there. But you know, pipe cleaners are made of cotton or polyester and those will burn real easily. So you got to wait for the pipe to cool down. But uh, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com or post them on the Pipes Magazine radio show page on uh, pipesmagazine.com. Or if you're on Facebook, uh, go to the Pipes Magazine radio show page there and like it there. All right, in just a moment, my, uh, the, the beginning of our summer series, Stories with Alan Schwartz. This is Internet Radio. Meet Josh. Everyone at SmokingPipes.com holds customers as a high priority, but nobody interacts with them more personally than Josh. He's our professor of pipes, if you will. As a previous professor of history, educating the customer comes easily to him. He loves explaining the history of a particular pipe to a customer or coaching his customer service team. I love to help customers find that perfect piece for their collection. It's my job to make sure there's a smile on the other end of the line and I'm more than happy to be the one to put it there. And although Josh's job can sometimes be quite demanding, he doesn't mind. He loves his job at smokingpipes.com. 
Why? Because I don't just sell pipes, I smoke them. Call us at 1-888-366-0345. That's 1-888-366-0345. Or check us out online at smokingpipes.com. We are quality. We are experts. We are smokingpipes.com. Welcome back to the Pipes Magazine radio show. And here we go. Summer series stories with Alan Schwartz. So what I did was Alan's got such a long history of people that he's met, people that he's encountered in the business, people that he's worked with. And then even before that, as a hobbyist and a student growing up and being in New York City, so I sat down over two afternoons with Alan and recorded about four hours worth of stories and have trimmed them down so that, uh, you know, that we'll, we'll get the best parts of it over the summer. So not every week, but uh, this is uh, week one of our summer series, and this is uh, Alan Schwartz, and we'll start at the beginning of how did he get started smoking? Alan, when did when did pipes and tobaccos really first come into your life? They first came into my life when my father, who smoked everything that could contain tobacco, which included cigarettes, gas pipes, uh, when he caught two of my friends and I sitting on our stoop. We lived in a brownstone in. Brooklyn, Williamsburg, which is very fashionable today, but then was just a nice middle-class neighborhood with big trees. <laughs> uh, and it's, um, he caught us smoking cigarettes. And he gave us his lecture number 37, whatever it was. He said, don't smoke cigarettes. I said, why? You do. He said, I, I smoke half of it. I throw it away. It's just a quick, a quick escape. So I said, so what should we do? He said, you could smoke a pipe. So I said, uh, okay, you know, we kind of agreed. In, 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 and then later on, I said to him, so uh, so now what do I do for a pipe? He said, well, you could you could go into my uh, the lower dresser drawer and take out one of the pipes and tobacco, which I know you use anyway sometimes. <laughs> so, you know, <laughs> sneak outside and, and smoke a pipe and pass it around. And I said, okay, well, buy me a pipe get me a pipe and he took me to a local tobacconist in those days there was such a thing you know every neighborhood had a little tobacconist and we went in there and he fixed me up with a with a pipe and uh, and a, a rather nice one actually uh, it was a k woody when they used to make use some beautiful pipes at the top of the line and and that and some tobacco and uh and he didn't do the same for my closest friend but he went and he bought a pipe similar i don't remember what it was and we walked around there. We were 16, 15-year-old kids. We must have looked ridiculous, but so what? You know, we did. We smoked pipes. We used to stand, sit on the stoop playing cards uh, in the warm weather, smoking pipes. And we would go to the park and smoke pipes and uh, pretend we were whatever we weren't. And uh, it was it was fun. <laughs> then I began to read about pipes, came across pipe books and so on. So... Uh, look, I mean, there's no reason at fudging age. 16 years old, I was in high school, and this must have been 1952, 52, 53. I was born in 37, so uh, you can do the math. Um, anyway, 53. And, uh, you know, that just continued. It grew and it grew. Got into college, and there was a lot of people smoking pipes and I, well, I didn't feel alone or I, was, I wasn't hiding from anybody and in those days you could smoke and in fact in many classrooms you could smoke as long as the professor didn't mind it because some of them came in smoking themselves and yeah. and, uh, and that was it and I, we began to explore this friend and I we would go into Manhattan as I said we lived in Brooklyn it wasn't, it wasn't a big job it was a very quick train ride but we would go into Manhattan and we would we would shop and read all the Wally Frank circulars and so on, the mysterious mixtures put together when a, when a, a, a tobacco cargo at sea mixed with the precious spices and produced Zanzibar <laughs> mixture, whatever it was called. I'm, I'm inventing that, but it was very close to it. And it was the romance of it. And he was wonderful at it, especially appealing to the naive. And it, it graduated. It went on from there. We just we began to buy 
buy better pipes. We found a, a very good pipe shop, which my father used to buy from uh, was, uh, continuously, which was uh, Barclay Rex in Lower Manhattan, then on Maiden Lane. And he took me there and got me another pipe, and it went on and on and on like that. So, so eventually, there I was, uh, a confirmed pipe smoker at a relatively tender age, certainly all through high school, the end of high school, college, graduate school, and into the rest of my life. And never really smoked anything else seriously, except maybe cigars, never cigarettes. It was kind of a, cigarettes were a, a, a quickie, you know, in, in a when you could smoke in an airport lounge or something like that because you could, they didn't want you to smoke pipes or cigars, understandably, or even on planes in the old days when you could smoke. They said, fine, you could smoke cigarettes in the section, but no, uh, you know, pipes or cigars. Well, for good reason. It smelled up the plane more. And um, so I would always buy a pack of cigarettes before I got on the plane and have, have something to do uh, with my lungs uh, for, <laughs> for the duration of the plane trip. Anyway... Uh, that was the real beginning, and you can you can uh, judge that as you will. Um, the, the more serious stuff came in uh, in in later years when I was you know something of a collector, but as I said to the consternation of a magazine editor at one point, I, I'm not a collector. I'm an accumulator. You know, I I think a collection has a uh, a focus. It has, uh, like in your, as in your collection, you know, as in yeah. somebody who decides to collect every K. Woody made in a certain shape between the years of 1948 and 1962. That's a collection. It has a focus. It has a thrust. It has a vector. It has whatever you want to add to in a collection. Otherwise, you have a lot of pipes. And there's nothing wrong with having a lot of pipes. The word collector is misapplied. You're an accumulator. I said that in an editorial once in uh, Smoke Magazine which will come later that's uh and and uh oh did i get angry letters oh, <laughs> you know i still believe, and you may get angry letters when you're saying this i i still i still believe that that's 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 it you have a collection you know, fine it means a collection in the broadest sense fine so i could say that i my wife has an incredible collection of kitchen utensils you know what does that mean it means that kitchen drawers are stuffed with things that she uses is that a collection i don't know you know, I, I really, I really don't know. I guess we're splitting—not uh, infinitives, but we're splitting, we're splitting a hair. Or is it a cliche? But we, you know, it, people will call it collector anyway, and uh, that's it. Well, just to okay, just to you... give everybody some of your uh, some of your street creds, as they call them nowadays, uh, you went on to get a PhD, correct? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I went on to get a PhD. Um, and there was a story in that too, but uh, I'll, I'll come back. Well, I went on to get a PhD. Well, what? Plus a doctor of pipes from the Chicago Pipe Club. I mean, so, 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 your you your call P me doctor, doctor. Your PhD is in what? It's actually well, technically, it's in English, but you know that's that's the the the, the broad. Uh, the broad sink into which they throw all these. It, it, it involves many things. I, uh, you know, I, I was interested. I did I did research on uh, an American poet uh, for a doctoral dissertation, also for the master's degree, and uh, I found him rather interesting. A poet in 1930 committed suicide in 32, 33, I forget now. And shame on me. We can edit that in. <laughs> uh, Hart Crane. And uh, I was very touched by his, his poetry, uh, uh, and he was part of a whole movement. And in any case, long and short of it, as I did, I did that for doctoral dissertation and uh, a, a two-volume dissertation, like the old French uh, dissertation, his life, his work. Uh, and I re-edited all the poems that were printed in the collected edition of Hart Crane, which is still in print. Uh, because I thought that uh, the editor of that collection, uh, a man named Waldo Frank, who was an eminent literateur in those days, I thought he, in the 30s and 40s, I thought that he played a little fast and loose, changing things where they shouldn't have been changed and so on. He, uh, uh, so I went back, all the manuscripts were were collected. They were in the rare book collection at Columbia University, and as I had street creds at Columbia because I had done my master's there, uh, I was able to go and use their library, even though I was a doctoral candidate at NYU. 
And you may ask me why Columbia NYU, because when, you, when you're working at that level, it's the person you work with rather than the institution. Yeah. And Columbia, they had a guy who was very good on Crane, but he was a biographer. And I wanted someone who was a poet and who was uh, a, a poet, you know, in, in, really sensitive to the poetry and understanding it at an artistic level. So I, I found someone like that, uh, Emma Rosenthal at NYU, and uh, applied to NYU for the graduate for the doctoral program, got in and so on, and I went right through. And uh, um, there were economic factors too, because I was I was married young and had uh, three kids, uh, a little house in the suburbs, and uh, a uh, you know a wife who wasn't wasn't working. Uh, a dog, a cat, and two cars. So <laughs> I somehow had to support all these people, and um, I knew that I could do that at least steadily with a uh, you know a teaching job, uh, you know a full time teaching job lead, leading to tenure. Uh, however, and there's one other biographic. I started out very young as a music student, um, and a serious music student. It got serious when I was a teenager, about the time to start smoke pipe and so on, and uh, it was with the guitar. And I, you know, I went through the whole usual phase of, of uh, you know, of having guitar and learning to play a few chords and so on, and going down to uh, Washington Square Park on Sunday or Saturday afternoons and standing around with a group of people playing Michael Rode the Boat Ashore and whatever. <laughs> Kumbaya, <laughs> you know. But, but I, uh, I graduated from that and began to study very seriously and, uh, got to the point where by the time I was 18, I was a member of the musicians union working gigs all the time. Uh, you know, whether they were weddings, bar mitzvahs, which we called club dates, you know, single engagements. Yeah. Or sometimes I did a lot of, I did a lot of recording work because I was a very good reader, sight reader. So, and there weren't six million guitarists uh, of that quality. I'm not saying of my quality that I was such a genius, but I was saying uh, at at uh, people who knew who played the instrument like an instrument rather than something you strummed six chords on. Uh, and uh, I was one of those guys around New York in later years when the when the whole Beatles phenomenon and everything uh, got to be a craze, and every kid and his uh, his sister or every, every sister and her brother had a little, got a little guitar and an amplifier for Christmas or Hanukkah or birthdays, suddenly uh, a percentage of those became very good guitar players, and now the field is packed with them. But in those days, in the, in the 50s and 60s and so on, and, and I'm a creature of the 50s and 60s. I, was, I entered high school in 51. I was graduated from high school in 59, uh, from college in 59. And I did the bulk of my graduate work in the first couple of years of the 60s. Got my degree in, I don't, again, I don't remember the date offhand. I have to look at it somewhere. But it was 63, 64, uh, around then. And uh, and all that time, I I worked, I, I taught a little part time in my field, but I earned my living mostly as a musician. Uh, wow. The pay was much better, and in compared to friends of mine who had to work stocking shelves in supermarkets, you know, after college, uh, after school every day, you know, for four, six, eight hours. I mean, my my schedule is far more remunerative and and uh, and satisfying so i did that and i kind of tapered off in my mid 30s but still i still play i still practice 2 hours a day i studied with a guy named high white who was a uh, he had been with uh, woody herman and les brown and, and when i met him he was a studio guitarist at cbs because they had uh, musical staffs and he did one of one of the late night shows i forget which one and the ed sullivan show I think Sullivan was CBS. I'm not sure if he wasn't in. Then it was NBC. Doesn't my memory doesn't plays little tricks on me. I studied with him for a number of years, and then I began to study seriously classical guitar with Leon Bolatine, uh, who again was very good and only taught professionals. So uh, I worked with him, and then I studied jazz conception, composition, arranging with Hall Overton, who was a pianist and a professor at Juilliard, and uh, did all the Thelonious Monk's arranging in those years. So, uh, you know, it was quite a musical education, and I used it, and as I said, still use it. I still pretty much can keep to it, because I'm working at, at home now, having officially retired from everything else I was doing. And uh, I... Uh, 
to practice two hours a day. I, you know, sometimes I flats around, but I mean, basically, I started about four o'clock and I don't end until six. Uh, and I, you know, that's still part of my life. Uh, and wow. while I'm playing, I don't smoke. I, <laughs> but the, no, no ashes down the uh, no ashes down the guitar. No, of course not. Not the kind of guitars I play. I mean, the ones I used to play when I played Michael Road, the Sure, it doesn't matter. If you yeah. they, were, they were they were wrecks anyway. But no, no, the guitars I have now are really top top instruments. You know, and, and uh, um, anyway, I I did all of that. I, I I worked. I taught. I I played. I uh, uh, and as far as the education is concerned, uh, my father's fervent wish was that I should. Uh, study medicine. I started college as a pre-med student because he he never got there. Although he wanted to be, but this was during the depression. He couldn't afford medical school, and there was the uh, the quota problem and so on. So he became an engineer. And uh, but I had cousins and and uh, relations that were there were a lot of doctors in the family. And if not, they were in the family. They were very close friends. So I had to be like that. And <laughs> by the uh, beginning of the second year of of labs, four days a week, and and. Uh, you know, and uh, um, organic chemistry and all those advanced mathematics and so on, which were very interesting. But I said, I don't really want to do this for the rest of my life. You know, I, I, I don't want to dissect animals. I don't want to dissect patients. <laughs> you know, yeah. so I changed my major. I changed my major, and my father, a darling man as he was, he didn't. He hardly spoke to me for three months or so, but he got over it. And then when I got my PhD. He would go into a restaurant with me, and he would say, uh, uh, "Headway." He knew all the way. He was very, very much a bon vivant, and he would go and he would say, uh, "Jack, I'd like you to meet my son, uh, Doctor Schwartz." You know, and I said, "Will you please stop that?" You know, I said, well, "He said why?" He said, "You can use the title." I said, "It's pretentious." I said, "It's even pretentious when MDs use it when they're going out to lunch." You know, it's just pretentious to use the title when you don't need it. Do they use it in the hospital in their office? Yes, of course they do, but they become accustomed to it, and we seem to have a society which bends. Oh, Doctor Schwartz, my God, my God, you know, uh, it, 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 and and it's it, it really is pretentious. A, a, a parenthetical: you don't see many. I know a number of people who go to the Chicago Pipe Show, and. Uh, and some of the friends of mine, in fact, that have MDs. And they don't come up to a table looking at a pipe that they might want to buy and say, hello, I'm Dr. Smith, you know, I'd like to look at this. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. It's just it's just putsy. But my father didn't understand that. He, he was uh, proud, of, proud of that whole thing. And he said, well, aren't you proud of it? I said, of course I am. I said, at, at the college campus, my students call me, Dr. Schwartz, uh, because I was too young, really, to have the professor title. I started as an instructor, went through the ranks, and ended up as a, you know, a tenured senior professor and so on. But I said I couldn't do it the other way. Uh, I, I just can't do it. I, he said it's not on your business cards either. I said my business cards are for the music business. I said <laughs> the ones you see, and that would be really be pretentious. That would alienate half of the people, the bookers and so on that I work for. They don't want to know that, and I don't want them to know it. It's really none of their business. I said it is on. It is. It will be on my card when I get one from get one from the college. I said, but I haven't gotten one yet because I'm not sure I'm going to stay at that college. So, in any case, to cut a long story short, that was that was the whole that was the whole history, and in. Interwoven with that were constant trips to buy pipes. Uh, and we will continue with more of Alan after this break. Italians have always been known for their aesthetic passion. It's their birthright, their legacy. And just like Savinelli, it continues to grow and evolve. It is ever-changing. Milan, 1876. Achilles Savinelli set out to change the way the world viewed smoking pipes, opening one of the world's first specialist tobacco shops. From one small storefront to a factory that delivered handmade pipes all over the world, the legacy he forged became one filled with success and prestige. Achilles' dream is carried on today by his family, who continues the Savinelli legacy. Each year, Savinelli debuts a series of new, forward-thinking designs comprised of quality-crafted pipes shaped from some of the best briar in the world. Behind every beautiful object, there's a story. Start your own chapter. Visit your local tobacconist or premium online dealer today. 
And now back to more stories with Alan Schwartz. Here's another reminiscence. Here's a day that you're talking, even though I was first living in Forest Hills and then later on in the suburbs in Great Neck and uh, uh, I, I, and I was teaching music and playing, but I would always find time to go down to the pipe shop often, often on Saturday mornings. And, Manhattan was so different, you could actually drive into the city. And if you knew where to look, you could find parking on Madison Avenue in, in the 40s, where no, any number of pipe shops were, uh, Wilkie's, Walk, uh, um, uh, Wally Frank, and uh, Will, uh, Wally, Wally Frank, Wilkie's, um, I'll think of that other company, in a while, like half a dozen pipe shops, just in, in a couple of square, a couple of square blocks. And I would go downtown to Lower Manhattan, where you could also park in the Wall Street area and schmooze with the with the guys at Barclay Rex, which I loved a great deal. And um, and you know, and I bought a pipe, I tried some tobacco, played with things, and that was my whole uh, involvement with it. It was really, it was truly a hobby at that point, but not uh, not work. Okay, so. Uh, where do you want to go from here? Well, let because, me uh, first of all, let me back up and say that the reason I mentioned your PhD and all your education is so that when you say something regarding words or you know whatever it is, you you've got the qualifications. You're way overeducated for what you ended up doing with towards the latter part of your career, um, but it never hindered you. Um, did you ever meet Wally Frank? No, I didn't. Uh, maybe in passing, in 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 one in a shop on Madison Avenue, perhaps. I but I couldn't really say because in those days I was I, I was not much more than a teenager, you know, was, uh, sixteen, seventeen. That was that was the Wally Frank yeah. phase. It it, it 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 pretty much faded by the time we got to uh, college. Uh, so I, I don't really know. Did he used to come into the shop on Forty Fourth and Madison? Probably, I wouldn't have known him if, if, if I fell over him. But I'm sure that yeah, he he was supposed to be a very interesting guy, uh, and certainly he was very imaginative, uh, or else he had a good copywriter for his, uh, <laughs> yeah. his brochures, which were which were one step above a comic book. I mean, really, but I mean, they, but they were yeah. very inventive. So uh, I mean, he was. No. So the answer. The answer is no. He, he was kind of a, a a edgy forefront marketer in the pipe and tobacco world when you know and and was writing stuff in his catalogs that nobody else would ever dream of. Yeah, right. I thought he uh, listen. He got a lot of people into pipe smoking, but what 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 he he was smart enough to know that pipe smoking, at least in those days, had a romance about it. You know, the guy with the pipe. It was a cliche, but the guy with the pipe was somebody who did more than just uh, open his mouth. He knew he knew how to keep his mouth shut, and a pipe stuck in it helped. You know, uh, <laughs> as someone said, you know, it, it brings wisdom to the mouth of the philosopher and shuts the mouth of a fool. But but uh, I think it was Thackeray. But uh, I'm I'm not I'm not really I'm not right again. I think the thing that come across. So I suppose I'm, I'm overqualified, uh, but but that had even that had something to do with it. I mean, I can I can jump ahead and and tell you how I got into it, really got into it, but it's it's a, it'll spoil the story. Yeah, no, we gotta wait. We we gotta wait, and you know, and, and we're we're doing this in chronological order because the other thing I want to ask you about was you were in New York City right at the beginning of the beatneck and the in the beat generation and jack kerouac oh, yeah. and and all that oh, oh, uh, yeah. any any run-ins any uh, any pipe smoking stories amongst those guys especially sitting there playing michael row your boat uh, no, no, not not really. I mean, I, I you understand. I didn't know a lot of the people. or well, they hadn't achieved fame. When we used to go down, um, uh, another friend, not not uh, not my pipe smoking friend, although he was a good guitar player too, and he may have done that sometime with me. But uh, uh, somebody else that I met when I was uh, working as a junior counselor in a summer camp and stayed friendly with him. Uh, but I I. There were the all these. There were a lot of guys who were a generation older than me, and they were 
they they were sort of the early beatniks, or they already were. I was I was somewhat insulated from that that culture, or shied away from it instinctively, because most of the people I knew were nice middle class or upper middle class people who were, who had jobs and some interesting, some less interesting, and were moderately well educated. Anything from high school through through college, some as a couple of years, sometimes a degree, and people then people with higher ed degrees. Uh, and I didn't really, I didn't have a chance to uh, dip my toe in very dirty water. <laughs> I mean, but there were these guys who were roughly the age of my my brother-in-law. I have had, I'm sorry to say, an older sister, ten years older than I, and she she got married to the love of her life, who who went off, uh, uh, was a doctor, went off, was was drafted very early before he even had his medical degree, pre-med, drafted right out of college, sent to Europe, and, uh, you know, and schlepped around the battlefields for four years before he came back, and they got married. And he was a great guy. You know, he, he was very good. He's still around. He's 95 years old, and I speak to him weekly. And, uh, you know, but he, the guys of that generation, the, the greatest generation, and there were a number of them who, by the time that I got to it, which was the early 50s, they were disillusioned, they had dropped out, they were unemployed, they used to go around wearing their old army field coats, you know, the, yeah. I, don't know I don't know if that's what it's called, sort of the longer, longer jacket with, uh, with uh, uh, pockets, you know, deep pockets like the hunting jacket kind of pockets. Uh, uh, gusseted pockets and so on. There, there was army army surplus, or else they just had them from the army. And they came in, you know, with schlumpy guitars, and they used to stand around and play. And they knew a lot of the protest songs and things that were uh, politically slanted, uh, you know, anti-war, uh, anti-government, whatever it was. It, it, they, it was just an interesting crowd. But I never got friendly with them because I was still a kid. You know, they they were. I was sixteen, seventeen, uh, even a little into. And not so much in college, maybe first year or so, but they, um, you know, they, they I, we weren't on the same page. They were, they were pleasant enough, you know, and they said, hey, you know the song, you know, it's a it's a work song, a 16-ton, you know, Tennessee Ernie Ford recorded, but it also was a, it has a protest element. You know, they didn't say that, but that's what it was, and uh, and we played all that kind of stuff, and then we went home. This was a Saturday afternoon or a Sunday afternoon, and and. and they they didn't they didn't remain our friends. God knows where they lived. A lot of them were living where the rooms were cheap, uh, or apartments were cheap, and that was the Lower East Side, the the tenement houses, the Lower East Side, which had largely been not largely, but they had been vacated by the people who began to make it in the system and moved first to Brooklyn and then from Brooklyn to uh, to Queens and from Queens to you know to as they say New York Long Island, <laughs> but. <laughs> yeah. But they, you know, they moved out to Nassau and, and not not quite Suffolk. It was out of, out of the, the uh, commuter belt. But uh, to Nassau County, nearby Nassau County, which is the first one after Queens. Uh, for, just for your listeners who don't know, Long Island runs out uh, eastward from New York uh, and uh, contains Brooklyn, Queens, which are uh, Kings Counties. Brooklyn, Nassau County is. Uh, uh, I'm sorry, Kings County is Brooklyn, and Queens County is. Uh, Queens, and, and then um, you know about 20 miles out begins uh, Nassau County, and then following that about 30, 35 miles past that is Suffolk County, which is the last one. You know that'll bring you out to the Lands End, which is the the lighthouse at um, Brian. Help me, uh, the lighthouse at the end uh, at East Hampton, Montauk Point. Montauk Point. Yeah, yeah no, East Hampton is uh, is uh, right. East Hampton is on the road to the lighthouse, but it's another 15, 20 minutes, 20 miles, whatever it is. And uh, that's that's the entire Long Island, you know. But I, I lived, as I said, first in Brooklyn, uh, and, and which was a spitting distance from the jump into, into uh, Manhattan. And uh, and then um, then Queens, which was further out, and it was a progression further out. And then uh, and then later years uh, after Great Neck, moved back into Manhattan. So I was born in Manhattan and returned to Manhattan. And ultimately, from the time you knew me, I had been living in Manhattan a number of years. And and uh, uh, but that's a later part of the story, and that, that yeah. involves how I got into the business part of the business. When you were when when you were in in college and and first really smoking a pipe, how often did you, yeah? How often did you smoke a pipe? Was it an all day thing or was it just the yeah, after class or an occasional kind of an event? 
yeah, it was after class uh, or uh, sometimes in class, as I said, you know, if the professor permitted it, and that was more likely in in the humanities courses. In the first year, I didn't have too many humanities courses. They were they were my savior, the one or two that I had, because the rest was all, as I said, it was organic chemistry and advanced <laughs> math, you know, and, and uh, botany and uh, uh, zoology, uh, you know, dissecting wonderful little animals. It was, and it was, and... It was very, very busy. I was in, I was in on campus from eight o'clock until six thirty, seven o'clock every night, and I lived not too far from it, which was a blessing, so I could actually walk home. Um, but, but I, uh, I didn't have time to breathe. By the time I finished my studying, my homework, whatever it was that I had to do, I mean, I had no time to breathe. I smoked in my room at home. I smoked uh, sometimes on the walk back and forth. I smoked on campus. There were no restrictions. They didn't want you to throw cigarette butts all over the place. And most of the people were pretty good about that. You know, there were urns on the library steps and in front of the various buildings. And most, most of the students, occasionally you got someone who didn't give a shit and threw, just threw stuff on the floor. But mostly people were pretty um, orderly. They, they respected the social order. Um, and, and so did I. That's the way I was brought up. You know, you, you, uh, you stayed with it. You know, that didn't mean you always drove in the speed limit, but mostly it meant you were polite to people and so on. But did I smoke all the time? No, not not continuously. I would find if I smoked too much, my tongue would bother me. Uh, and and uh, but did I smoke between classes, after class, sometimes in class? Yeah, yeah. It was a constant presence in my in my in 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 the. Uh, and the right side of my mouth, and I, I eventually did orthodontia with the pipe. <laughs> I'm serious. I pushed the teeth up on the right side where I always held the pipe, and uh, there's there's a, there's what I call a pipe hole, and uh, every dentist that I've been to has noticed it. One said, "Well, we could straighten that out." I said, "We're going to straighten it out. I'll do it all over again." You know, so it, it, I didn't. You know, there's no reason. So I've got that there and uh, uh, and the usual uh, accompaniment of pipe smoking uh, seems like forever is that you know your teeth your teeth are not pearly white uh, no certainly mine aren't um, but you know what, what the hell it's uh, the, so in the, the purpose. they're still mine in in the Maybe it, pipes in your time in college when obviously you know money money's not growing on trees for you but what was that do you remember what that dream pipe was what was the the pipe that you'd see and you'd think boy someday i want to oh yeah oh i can tell you i can tell you uh, what it was um it was a chariton pipe and i it started when a very dear friend of mine who was also a pipe smoker. I hadn't met him until college, but a uh, very bright, very bright guy was a, an art history major. And he, uh, and he and his older brother, who was a lawyer, they were very much into pipes. His older brother was not in college. He was always practicing. Um, and my friend, I don't want to mention his name because, uh, you know, but they both had names. Uh, the brother's long since dead, but uh, my friend is still, she was my age still around uh and he showed me a pipe that his brother had gotten for him and it was a perfect straight grain chariot and looked it looked like the lines were painted on it very large this this guy's a big hefty guy and or he was hefty he's but he's a big guy and uh the pipe suited his face and personality and uh i i can't say i envied him because i didn't want it to have it but i always wanted a pipe like that didn't happen until my uh first or second year in graduate school i could have bought them in new york or, you know in fact someone once gave me a birthday present of a kind of a you know a bottom of a barrel charitin from lane it was a, a sandless it was a very nice pipe but but uh but i wanted that perfect uh charitin supreme and i managed to get it in 1960 or 61 i think it was when i I got to London, and among many things that I did, I went into the Chariton shop. It was still on German Street, and uh, uh, it was uh, um, it was a German G E R M A I N. Yeah, they called it. Oh, no, no J E R M Y N. Uh, German Street. Uh, don't ask me what the derivation is. I anyone could look it up, but, but I, I don't. I could too, but I'm not going to do it right now. Um, and I bought myself a perfect Chariton freehand 
a sort of a um, wasn't it? It was a, um, a a Dublin, a Dublin with a tilted bowl, and it was very organic looking uh, for Sheraton. I loved Sheratons, but I never thought them as organic as and here the Sheraton people. It, they they were dated in a certain way. They the the carvers, uh, as brilliant as they were, were very English, you know, and they they had they had they kept the line. So so the pipes had had a, about them not a kind of an elegance that the French pipes and Italian pipes had, which I learned about later. This was, or I learning about in the process, but they were chunky. That's the only thing I could say. And I, I bought this wonderful pipe, which also had looked like the lines were painted on it with a Sharon Supreme freehand. Uh, and uh, I never realized it, but the, and then it said 61. And I always thought that was a catalog number. Of course, it was the year. <laughs> so, well, I think it was a year, but again, I, I, as I said, I never became a collector and uh, particularly interested in dealing with the esoterica of a particular brand, uh, which you and I see all the time yeah. at the Chicago Pipe Show and other pipe shows, and that's fine. I think the people who want to do that should do it. I mean, it's great when, when somebody who can afford it has a master collection of Tsuga pipes that he exhibits at the at the show, by the way, that same man who we both know is is a medical doctor, a thoracic surgeon, but he doesn't walk around, you know, saying, "Oh, I am Doctor So and So," you know. Yeah. He's a, at the show. He's just a guy who buys pipes and tobacco, and uh, I become friendly with. Um, but uh, the Sharons were like that. They they were they were the pipe to have among the people I knew. In those years, and uh, very, it was very, very, very English pipe. Everybody was involved with that, and I eventually wound up having uh, a great number of them. Uh, some of which I sold, and some of which I still, some of which I didn't like enough, so I would sell them off, and some of which I, I still have in, in my one of my drawers. Um, and uh, that's when I really got interested in pipes enough to seek after something i bet you would never guess from listening to alan that he grew up in new york city we'll be back in just a minute i'm jeremy reeves head blender of cornell and deal pipe tobacco company at cornell and deal we think the best things in life are better with age and we are passionate about creating the best possible pipe tobacco available Fueled by this passion, we introduced the Cellar Series, a collection of blends like no other. While the blends in this series are ready to smoke now, each one has been meticulously designed to optimize depth and complexity as the tobacco ages in the tin. Currently, the Cellar Series is comprised of Oak Alley, Chenay's Cake, Joie de Vivre, Old Grove, and Bourbon Blue, but we will be unveiling new additions to this very special series as time goes on. Pick up a tin to smoke now and save a few for later enjoyment so that you can experience all the richness and subtlety each blend will reveal through the years. Cornell and Deal's Cellar Series. The secret ingredient is time. Contact your local or online retailer for information. This is Internet Radio. I hope you've enjoyed uh, Alan's story so far. Alan is one of those guys that, I, that I'd run into at trade shows and at pipe shows and stuff and would actually look forward to sitting down and hearing his, uh, hearing his stories and his tales of, uh, of the days of past and then also hearing what was going on with him. Um, talk, about a, talk about an intelligent renaissance type of guy. Uh, speaking of intelligent renaissance type of guy, uh, Ray LaMontagne, pipe smoker and uh, folk blues, I don't know what kind of musician you want to call him, but uh, he's got a new album out. It's called Part of the Light, and it was released recently. I'm not sure exactly when, but anyway, uh, Ray enjoys a good pipe and uh, sings a good song. So for tonight's episode, we get Ray LaMontagne. So 
song is called Let's Make It Last from Ray LaMontagne's new album, Part of the Light. Check your mailbox, you moron! In the mailbox, going back to last week's show with Tom and Talking Vintage Tobaccos, uh, Casey Ghost writes, Your show reminded me of the Casey Pipe Show and its vintage tobacco table. We'd put out four to seven tins of some very old stuff for people to enjoy. They really liked the 50-year-old tin of cigarettes that we had. Yeah, I remember. They, those smelled really good. Uh, then he goes on to write, the, the best tin I ever opened was a tin of Copes Escudo that was 40 years old. People who tried said it was the best tobacco they have ever tasted. And I believe I might have tried a half a bowl of that, and it was uh, pretty darn good. Lost that perky punch, though. Uh, then he also writes Love Soul Man by the Blues Brothers. Just tremendous. Rest in peace, Guitar Murphy. Um, yeah, the Blues Brothers. <laughs> a great movie. And then Down Home Smoker says, I haven't had the opportunity to meet Mr. Perry Jensen, but I did have a good chat with Mark Ryan at the KC show. He is such a neat and friendly guy. I enjoyed the music this week as well. Pleasant smokes. And the same to you. Yeah, if you can ever get Mark to sit down and talk tobacco... 
you'll learn something. And then uh, Rob Flores, 25, says, I enjoyed the show tonight just as I always do. The conversation with Tom felt like two friends hanging out while the rest of us enjoyed listening to the great stories. It's amazing how old the, the tins are by the time they are opened and smoked. The oldest I've tried is a tin of HH Pure Virginia with three years of age. I look forward to trying more in the future. Uh, it had been a long time since I listened to that song. Really liked it. Keep it up, Brian. And the show gives me something to look forward to in the middle of the week as I listen to the show while at work. Happy trails. Uh, glad we uh, make your, your work day go by a little bit faster. Um, I had the, I, I had the uh, last week after the show and everything, I had the entire Blues Brothers album just kind of streaming behind me while I was doing some stuff. And it was a lot of fun. Brought back some memories of... Uh, of a store that I ran at Universal Studios where we had a little Blues Brothers show that came out every, I don't know, every hour and played for 20 minutes, and they sounded good too, although some of it was pre-recorded. Anyway, all right, comments or questions, email me, brian at pipesmagazine.com. Follow the Pipes Magazine radio show on Facebook, and you can also send me a friend request if you're on Facebook. I love them, and I love all the comments, so keep them coming. All right, rave time coming up in just a moment. Cowboy. Cowboy. Okay, we know I love Disneyland. We know I love most things Disney. In particular, one of the things that I love about Disneyland is the beginning of the Pirates of the Caribbean. So you're, you get in this boat and you're going through the bayou. And in the bayou, on the right side is the restaurant. On the left side is little scenes. And there's an old man sitting in a rocking chair smoking a pipe. And strung out all around him are these artificial fireflies. Well, growing up in Los Angeles... We don't have fireflies, so I have fond memories of the Pirates of the Caribbean fireflies until we moved to the East Coast. And once we moved to the East Coast, I realized that fireflies are a late spring, early summer tradition. Well, this is our first late May, June in the new house, and I am enjoying and have been enjoying the heck out of every evening going outside and looking at the little fireflies bouncing around in their little lights and following them and of course watching as the sun sets the birds coming and dive bombing them and trying to eat them now the sad part for me is firefly season is about over but this year at this house in particular the fireflies have been wonderful at any given moment in the evening i could go out on the deck at sun at sunset or just after and look out there and see 50 to 100 different fireflies bouncing and weaving and lighting up and disappearing and it's just a you know just a, a wonderful way to end the day and i'm uh, sad to say though that because fireflies the males only tend to live for about two weeks yeah they come up out of the ground they bounce around, they light up, they try to attract a female. They do their business and then they die. Uh, and then the female lays eggs and the eggs lay dormant underground. And then next spring it happens all over again. But I'm sorry to say that that's coming to an end. Yeah, so now we enter the dog days of summer and no more fireflies. But this year the fireflies have been wonderful. And for that, I'm thankful for the fireflies for entertaining me. And now I can uh, put out bug stuff out on the yard without <laughs> without killing the little fireflies. I can kill all the mosquitoes now. So, sorry mosquitoes, you're next. All right, I want to uh, say if you have any comments or questions, again, email me or post them and all that stuff. Hope you enjoyed the uh, first part of uh, Stories with Alan Schwartz as, uh, as we get going into his uh, time of owning and operating an importer we get more pipe and tobacco geeky than i think we've ever gotten on the show so that'll be fun for you as the uh, summer goes along 
So again, uh, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you to Alan for doing this. And until next time. the clouds when we're together just sing a song and think about sunny weather happy Survey, I supersize that for you.